Mom and me versus you and Dad. We're going to have joint custody. I've got an elegant new house across the park. Across the park? Is that even Brooklyn? It's an elegant block, the filet of the neighborhood. I mean, it's gross when he turns into the bug, but I love how matter-of-fact everything is. Yeah, it's very Kafka-esque. Because yeah, it's written by Franz Kafka. Right. I mean, clearly yeah, I would have to be. This is nothing like our house. You mean your mother's house? This is nothing like your mother's house. That's what I just said. No, you said our house. That's your mother's house. This is your house, too. No, this is your house. Fuck that cock shit! Frank, you gotta relax, my brother. Ivan is fine, but he's not a serious guy. He's a Philistine. What's a Philistine? It's a guy who doesn't care about books or interesting films and things. Then I'm a Philistine. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. So quickly, we have a Patreon these days. We do. You can sign up for it if you feel like it. And if you don't feel like it or aren't able to, then that's great, too. We're happy you're listening to us. And if you get bored and turn off this show in five minutes, we still love you. You can't escape. Can't make us stop loving you. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> you will not escape. <laughs> I'm going to grab your foot from underneath your bed and validate your struggles. Um, so today we are uh, we're going to talk about the movie The Squid and the Whale. What was your experience with this movie? This was a movie that we watched for this show and that I hadn't seen since I was a teenager. I remember watching it pretty early on in my freshman year of college and I went to Bennington so I also watched it with an air of like are these the people I'm in school with now and yes I was um and some other people too uh, and I remember it being like just so grueling and wildly uncomfortable when I first saw it and it's like still super uncomfortable uh now but this feeling I was really surprised by just how how fun um and and light the bitterness of this movie was to me. You know, it was like a like some gross liqueur that becomes trendy. <laughs> that's a great that's a great way to put it. I really enjoyed how deliciously bad these people are. Or I should say uh, deliciously bad some of their transactions and their relationships with each other are because I think that there's a lot of good in some of these people but like you know many situations where there are good people a wild dose of oppressive codependent I don't know like a storm <laughs> at all times people are driven to where they're at in one way or another and and uh I rewatched pieces of this before this introduction and Everyone is brilliant in this movie. If you have experience with people who are like those that are represented in this movie, this is probably an uncomfortable viewing, but know that you're in good company with us in this conversation uh, between you and me, Sarah, and then our guest, Sean Nelson. Our dear friend, Sean Nelson, because talking about this movie means bonding over this movie. Sean is a writer and a musician. He wrote for The Stranger for about a hundred years and has written a 33 and a third volume on Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark. He was the lead singer of the band Harvey Danger and has recorded a number of projects on his own, including last year's incredible Nelson Sings Nilsson. I love that record, by the way. That record is 
incredible. He also co-wrote and appeared in Lynn Shelton's My Effortless Brilliance. This was of the first episodes we recorded, actually, I think it is our second. And so we were still figuring out some stuff by way of the recording process. And so maybe we missed a little bit of Sean's audio at the beginning. So you'll hear him introduce himself and then it'll be a little bit more until you hear him again. He does return, though, and his insights on the squid and the whale are absolutely worth hanging around for. So if for just, you know, a second you think, where the heck did that Sean Nelson fellow go? Uh, he's coming back. He'll be there. How, how would you describe who these people are? The Squid and the Whale is about the Berkman family, Joan and Bernard, who are played by Laura Linney and Jeff Daniels, and then Frank, who's played by Owen Klein, and Walt, who's played by Jesse Eisenberg. Basically, it starts with a family tennis game that kind of shows that all is not well and then progresses immediately to the parents announcing to the kids that they're going to get divorced and it's all going to be super reasonable and they'll have the kids on this schedule and it's all going to be fine and it is not fine and that is the movie. That's a great description and along the way we get to know Bernard who we may just notice some of our dad's tendencies in them and if we're lucky we don't recognize any of Bernard. (laughs) (laughs) Who's played wonderfully by Jeff Daniels. The filet of a career. (laughs) Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex. How's it going? You just got one name. (laughs) (laughs) What did we watch? We watched The Squid and the Whale. This would be a rough time to find out we watched two different movies. We watched Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and I had a great time. Ooh, that's a great dad movie. Yeah, that's my next That's my next pick. Is that really? <laughs> I've been thinking about it, yeah, because I was like, who was like, who was a dad in media that I grew up with that I saw in like a movie or TV show as a kid who was like a good, nice dad? And I was like, Rick Moranis, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, oh, that would be nice, especially after today's episode. It would be nice to do a dad. Just a nice dad who (laughs) makes mistakes. He's not perfect. He did shrink those kids. He sure did. He sure didn't mean to. (laughs) We are joined by Sean Nelson, who is a man. And uh, can you tell us some other things about you and why you're here? I think that about sums it up, really. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm a occasional writer and musician, and um, I am a happy dog parent. So, Squid and the Whale, how would you summarize what this movie is about? Oh, boy. This movie is about a couple who get divorced and their kids experience of that their two sons experience of it and it feels like this sort of season in this family's life and then the family unbecoming a family unbecoming a family oh that's a really good way to put it i remember watching this movie and i remember there being scenes that i had trouble watching like sitting through i was surprised at how difficult it still was to watch Hmm. Maybe more difficult than when I first saw it, which must have been when it came out, which feels like maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, f- I felt this movie more viscerally this time around than I did the first time that I watched it. Hmm. How did the dad strike you? <laughs> Whose name is Bernard? <laughs> Bernard Berkman, which really sounds like a, a serial killer from the, the Midlands. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I 
I vividly remember watching this movie the first and only other time I've seen it, which was right after I started college. And I remember watching like DVDs with my fellow kids and this like this is cinema way. And we were doing this thing where like, you know, we're it was a lot of teenagers who were very like the Jesse Eisenberg character in that movie where like we cared about film a lot and we thought that would save us. And I remember watching this movie and finding it like so wildly uncomfortable. And also because I was watching it with my roommate and I think her boyfriend and I didn't know them like super well at that point. And there's so much cum in this movie. There's so much cum in this movie. <laughs> Literal cum, not not even just metaphorical. Yeah, there really is. And it's and it's a plot point multiple times. Yeah, and and so what my experience of it was actually that I was dreading watching it and then I watched it and I was surprised at how un unpleasant it was to me. First of all, it's mercifully short. Like I remember it being yes. long. <laughs> But it, it's not long at all. It's 80 minutes. 80 minutes long. It's one of those movies that feels like a very lovingly expanded short story. Like this could be like a very dense short story. Um, and there's characters publishing in The New Yorker in it. So it kind of feels like it's of that sub-sub-genre. But yeah, I was surprised at how easy it went down for me this time. I was like, all of these characters are just... I, I felt like the movie was like not in any way nice to any of the characters, but was, in my opinion, kind to them. Because mm. if you're, you know, if you're watching it um, with any degree of care, it feels, and if you're not a teenager, it feels like you can really get a sense of who they are and where they're coming from. And, and it also feels like the dad is just incapable of being a good dad. And like, that's kind of the journey that we see the characters going on in this movie, too. Just being like, hmm, <laughs> I don't like Dad. What struck me about this movie is that you are both one of the, the smartest and most quote-unquote intellectual people that I know, but you're also inherently anti-snobbery. Aw, thanks. You summed up the movie nicely. It's about, about watching kind of the undoing of this marriage through the eyes of these children. That's basically what we're watching in these like various character studies uh, over time. I'm curious to know, largely I think we're pitted to see it mostly through Walt's eyes, who's played by a younger Jesse Eisenberg. Although he really hasn't aged in the last 15 years. It's disturbing, actually, how little he's aged. It is. Like, he actually is Lex Luthor. <laughs> I'm curious about how, you know, you process these characters because you have like they're using this intellectualism as some sort of armor and then worse, like the parents are using it as an armor and then Walt isn't even using it. He's just parroting stuff that his dad says as armor, yeah. which is so uncomfortable to watch and, and, and see happen. Like, how did how did you just feel about these people? I think that the movie has gotten easier for me because when I first saw it, I was a teenager and I like was the Walt character in many ways. And that's just excruciating. And now I'm like, oh, honey, <laughs> like don't call Kafka Kafka ass. <laughs> Watching it this time, I found myself identifying a lot with the Laura Linney character probably the person who suffers the least in the movie actually arguably because you know she goes through the ringer as well and goes through this process of watching her kids be turned against her by their dad or him attempting to do that um, and being blamed for everything but like 
you feel like in the end she never loses sight of the fact that like a scene whose like humor I really didn't appreciate until this time is when Bernard the dad comes back and he's like do I have a shot still like didn't I have a chance what about at the end when I tried to make dinner and stuff and she's like you never made dinner (laughs) 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 that he has sort of built up this whole narrative in his head you can tell that he has been thinking since like much earlier in the movie about like that thing my dad said like do I have a chance to fix things maybe and it's like no you never had a shot like you lost your shot so many years ago and you didn't notice it and like that's your whole problem this is a a movie where like Laura Linney at the end is like Marilyn Burns at the end of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre just like laughing hysterically as she's being driven away from this this terrible marriage like you if you identify with her character you're like it's gonna be rough but it's gonna be so good compared to being married to that guy you know and then the bernard character i was just like oh my god i've i I was in an mfa program so i've met like a lot of this guy over the years like this is the guy who who teaches the secrets of creative writing so he can fuck his students and i just feel like the time that i've spent with the kinds of people that these characters are and sort of exploring the parts of myself that identify with different aspects of them just allows me to feel a lot of love for them. And also I think the fact that this movie is like, I was talking to a friend the other day and she was like, yeah, I watched Hannah and her sisters on TCM. Like, I don't feel great about it, but I'm not giving Woody Allen money. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's a pleasant movie. And I was like, yeah, like when I was in seventh grade, that was like... My favorite movie because it takes place in this magical world of like Upper West Side elites who like reference literature and classical music and have affairs and have no emotional intelligence at all. I feel like The Squid and the Whale was also uncomfortable for me as a teenager who felt like I was just cracking into this magical world of New York City jerks because it's it's so painfully reveals the lives of people who pride themselves on being culturally aware as like being a a cultured person doesn't mean your life has to be empty but like it sure can be probably the first time I saw this movie I absolutely didn't relate to it from my own upbringing outside of a father weaponizing his identity and interests (laughs) you know like that's like that's what Bernard does really well is he everything he likes is right and anything anyone else likes or approaches is wrong not just wrong but like he can predict exactly how it's going to be wrong and why it's terrible dads do this thing really well that he's doing but I didn't know these people until I dated into a Connecticut wasp family and 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 was pretty abjectly hated by the parents of that family because I was a guy, you know, who had the background that I just experienced and described. And so I think that the first time I watched this movie, that's why it was, I think had I seen this when I was younger, I would have aspired to be around these people missing the point. But now watching it, I'm just like, I have PTSD from having dated dated uh-huh. into this family. And just like, and the, the sort of joylessness with which you relate to art in that way. Yeah. And as a teenager, it's, it's some of your opinions. Well, I shouldn't speak for all teenagers. When I was a teenager, a lot of my opinions were like sort of repeating things that adults I trusted thought, which is like devastating to see represented in such a way in a movie when you're still like doing a lot of that stuff. (laughs) Walt has the, um, 
you know, he definitely knows how to parrot his dad's opinions that aren't even opinions. I think it's good to remember that you're allowed to laugh when Bernard says, a tale of two cities is minor Dickens, because, <laughs> like, that's just inherently a comical thing to say. And to actually unpack the reality of whether that's true or not takes a certain amount of, I don't know, sweat equity in deciding what which books are minor compared to substantial. But I think it's interesting. It's a tiny little detail, but I, I noticed it this time. I know I'd noticed it before, but it never really registers in my mind as a salient thing. You know, they have the poster of the mother and the whore on the wall. Of course, I remembered seeing it and having that same sort of, oh, yes, indeed. Yeah, I felt it in a way. I really like that movie. But on Walt's um, wall in his bedroom, he's got a poster of uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. That's like where his heart may be actually located. And so much of the movie is about the, you know, the dangers of... Um, premature identification with uh, with people or identifying with someone and then outgrowing it, which I think he does by the end. I think it's to the movie's credit that they never give Jeff Daniels that moment where he's like, you know what, maybe actually I will read. You yeah. know, he, he has a heart attack almost and he's in bed and he's still, it's still only about his total self-absorption. And it is, I think it's possible to read that in multiple ways and it's possible to have some sympathy for um for bernard um but it's also very easy not to need to you know the um because it's really i mean in a way it's actually really about the um the the mom the laura linney character um realizing that she has outgrown this relationship and this identification and this idea that he's the writer and she's the wife of the writer or the aspiring writer meanwhile she's coming out with all this amazing uh you know she's being recognized for her for her worth bernard is kind of the this force in everyone's life and this is about like how people learn how to like how to live or die by bernard right it's like mm. walt has his realization when he has his realization and sees exactly as sean just said that even in the face of this person's chaos and in crisis he's still totally self-absorbed laura linney's learning it over time and maybe walt learns a little from laura linney that that he can have an identity within that and it's kind of through his memories of his mother beyond the this like weird towering terrible vision of his father that he realizes that he used to be a person before he started to absorb all these ideas of his father's is that something that you relate to at all or is that it was that something that you were just like oh thank god i'm not walt <laughs> i mean yeah i feel like i've spent a lot of my life secretly wanting my dad's approval and it's this difficult and for me pretty recent journey to be like I don't actually even want that like I this thing I only thought was valuable because it was being withheld from me and like you know anything becomes valuable if it's made artificially scarce that's how the diamond industry works <laughs> <laughs> that is the truth Sean where did you outside of like recognizing some of this stuff where did you land on the dynamic between in particular between Walt and Bernard. To paraphrase the title of a beloved uh, alternative children's book, um, I had two dads. <laughs> um, and I, my biological father, whom I didn't see very much, was way more like the Bernard guy. Like, And so up until I was about six or seven, the, he was the sort of dominant presence uh, in my world. And then his absence became, you know, one of the great, like emotional mysteries of my life. 
And I also was kind of in a position of being the only person who was willing to defend him to anyone. And, you know, my mother certainly had her legitimate grievances with their marriage. Um, but her family also was very not into my dad and whatever. So but then she I, when I uh, attained a stepfather, that's the one where the real like battle of wills and quest for approval and then also doing whatever I could do to sort of uh, events like the opposite of his approval. It really did kind of cast a long shadow in my life. And he was just a guy who, if you wanted approval, you could be certain that that's the one thing you were never going to get because that was like, it was a, just like a tough love environment, surely not as tough as some, but um, the, the whole thing when you, when, when the parents are self absorbed or obsessed or, you know, just like self dominated and they don't have time to really guide you the the like the question of what, like how do you even what even is a person and how do you be one and what like what what am I supposed to think about things meaning itself has a way of becoming sort of arbitrary because you move from one to another because you're just like trying things on in a way and you don't have guidance the idea of sort of intentionally forming yourself as an adult in such a way that a certain amount of like, you're going to be wrong about some things and that's okay. And you will, that's how you learn. That's like the, I really hate the word journey, but that is the, that is the trajectory, let's say of uh, my uh, adult life. The magic trick that I think that this movie pulled off so well was illustrating how dads can be real shitty, but still not just paint themselves as the hero in your story, but, insert themselves as the hero in your story. We see Walt go to therapy and remember that his mother was ultimately the kind of positive through line through his life. Although we've seen him spend at least the first half of the movie demonizing his mother. When he's asked to remember these memories with her, in in which we get, you know, titular imagery of the movie, he remembers going to the Natural History Museum, seeing the battle between the the squid and the whale with his mother. He's asked where his father was in the whole time. And he says, I don't know, he was downstairs, which is exactly my memory of my father. And in a lot of ways, in the later part of his life is a legend in my own mind, but I absolutely demonized and resented my mother after their divorce as if it was her fault for outgrowing my father, who was downstairs the whole time, who was just away until he absolutely had to be. <laughs> you know? And it, this did such a, a, a phenomenal job of doing that. And then also, I love that she's out fucking. <laughs> Yes. And Billy Baldwin. My brother. Also, this is the best <laughs> Billy Baldwin movie I've ever seen. I think this is a Billy Baldwin movie, right? We can call it that. Billy Baldwin is really incredible in this movie. He really is, right? Like he's he he I think he has an important role. I think he's at like Mike Yanagita level for someone who like is barely in it, but like who the whole thing kind of hinges around somehow. Frank, the whole movie wants to be Billy Baldwin's character, Ivan, who is Who a, wouldn't? You're right, right, absolutely. If you had to pick a man in this movie to <laughs> be, <laughs> who among us? He later it starts to pair him. He calls his brother my brother, which uh, which Ivan does, and that's such like a lovely moment because you're like, oh god, there's hope for Frank. S- someone talk me through Frank. <laughs> And what he's going through. I feel like this also was something that, like, 
his whole plot line was like excruciating for me as a teenager. And now as a much more maternally built person, I'm just like, oh, yep, you're going through some hard stuff and you're masturbating on everything. And because that's because you're a little kid and then that's what you're doing. And yeah, so he's a little kid who starts masturbating on everything or I guess masturbating and then like smearing his cum intentionally on certain objects and eventually gets in trouble. It's right next to a picture of 80s Willie Nelson is the second time he does it. I did not notice that. (laughs) It's on the next locker. I think it's just supposed to be like, it's not intentional, but like right next to it when he goes up in the locker, I zoomed in and I was like, oh, that's 80s Willie Nelson. I mean, these (laughs) off-tier directors, man. Another thing I noticed this time that I think is like beautiful and haunting and just that I, I love is during the rehearsal for the talent show, there's a little girl singing Kyrie Eleison a cappella. Yes. And we stay with her, like, for a while. <laughs> that, I believe, is the um, real-life sister of the actor who played Frank. And they're both the children of uh, Kevin Klein and Phoebe Cates. Oh, oh of course they no are. No way. And also, Phoebe Cates's most iconic role is one where, you know... Masturbation is no stranger. <laughs> Oh, my God, that really blew my mind out of my head. And then the Cars is moving in stereo was playing during that scene. And we have the Cars's drive during a critical, also during a come moment when Walt is hooking up with Jules Pfeiffer's daughter. It was enough for me to know that like Britta Phillips was involved and there was a gem connection. But just to know... <laughs> Because Jem is very important to you. Jem is just as a foundational text, as far as I'm concerned. But also of, and I know that Britta Phillips' career is sprawling and incredible, and represents a lot of different things. But also, 1986 for me was a gem year. The fact that Frank is coming on everything literally, and Bernard is coming on everything figuratively, is is like such an interesting binary. I yeah. mean, all he is doing at all times is masturbating mm. on everything all the time. He's also drinking. He's like a little ET. And a lot of beer. Yes. And everyone's kind of fine with it, I guess. Like, doesn't she know where her beer's going? He's also like a, a very classic, unattended 80s child, and that there's a scene where he like sneaks away from his dad's house to go back to his mom's house, and his dad like finds him like walking down a dark street in Park Slope. Yeah. And is like, you, this is my night. I'm not upset about you walking alone through Brooklyn at 10 years old, that's fine. But like, I'm upset for me. And you're just like, wow, childhood in America, man, it's a tapestry. Sean, I feel like age wise, you're probably Frank's age. He was, that was the age I was when my parents split up. Um, And so those, like those years were definitely what I, when I was going through this, as opposed to Walt being kind of a younger high school kid. And I just couldn't uh, relate any less to Frank's sort of (laughs) mode of coping or not coping. But I do, like, he is the sort of, like, that feral, um, invisible, like, oh, I'll just, I guess I'll just drink a massive tumbler of what is probably, you know, whiskey that's been there for five years. His thing is just sort of more heart rending uh in a way and uh, you know you, you you worry more about him because ultimately like walt's gonna 
keep making his own mistakes. And if he continues to be the way he is, he will be, you know, exactly where he winds up. Whereas there's that moment where um, Frank is looking in the mirror and saying, no, Frank, no. Like, and really interestingly, I was like, oh, right, because he just saw Blue Velvet. But in fact, he didn't see Blue Velvet. The others did, which is exactly not only like something my dad would have done. It is literally something my dad did. <laughs> But it was my uh, my stepsister. Um, he took her and maybe some of her. I don't think she was on a date, but um, it's like Blue Velvet. I hear this movie sounds really interesting. And but he did take her and her, you know, like early mid teenage friends to see it. And they were, you know, like that was Seattle in the 80s. And so they were very like cool and they could handle it, apparently. But just the like absence of even the impulse to be vaguely parental or the darkness of that impulse and the sort of self-congratulation that is contained in that impulse, even though on balance, I would rather have seen Blue Velvet um, when I was 13 or 15 or whatever than Short Circuit, though, in fact, I saw both, but I saw them alone, which is more to the point, speaking of Frank, I don't know where he's going, but it definitely seems like he is at risk, you know, in a, in a real way of becoming like a criminal or, and, you know, maybe not an addict, but like someone who harms himself and others to compensate for the absence of parental, you know, interest really. Right. I mean, I think like, it seems like the point of that scene and that's, that's kind of, I think maybe the clumsiest scene a little bit because, because it, it offers it. And then you're just like, what is, what is happening as you're asking right now, like what is happening here? But I feel like it's an, you know, it's like an illustration of being like, this is what they're missing. Like when they're, when they're going through all of this and, you know, Bernard's response to being told that his son is masturbating and then wiping his cum on everything at school is that's a thing that happens more often than you think, which is. Which suggests he might have his own history with it who knows and we can't know because his his ex-wife asks him about that and he says he won't comment on it but it's that sort of sense of like sophistication is the only measure that is meaningful in any way he has to seem like he is sufficiently above the petty like bourgeois concerns about like oh you think masturbation is bad because you're an eisenhower supporter or something <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, if uh, the fact is that if he probably in a different situation, if he heard about it happening to another kid or being, you know, something another kid did, he was like, in a library? (laughs) (laughs) So, Sarah, I'm sorry to put you on the spot. I'm making uh, some assumptions that you of the three of us are the most likely to have dated a Walt. And I want to (laughs) know what what you saw in his relationship with Sophie, uh, who is a perfectly lovely woman that he through the encouragement of his father mistreats yeah no i did an mfa alex i mean (laughs) 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 yeah i mean i feel like this plot is so interesting to me because it's walt kind of asking implicitly he keeps returning to his dad for guidance and he's like what should i do this girl's interested in me and he's clearly i think experiencing some avoidance i think because this like girl like swoops in and is like hey let's do this it's scary to like suddenly be put on the spot and have to like actually have sex with someone just in the same way that it's stressful to like actually read kafka 
So it feels like he's turning to his dad for romantic guidance and kind of what seems like his first, you know, his first romantic relationship that we've heard about in this movie anyway. What he's getting is like, well, you know, try to remain unattached. She's fine for now. You have lots of time to date gorgeous women. And just, yeah, this relating to sexual and romantic partners as if they are films that you might watch. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this just ties into the way that the sort of culture of connoisseurship can lend itself very well to misogyny. It doesn't have to, but it can. Yeah, and it does, it's also the like probably the worst thing that can happen in Walt's life is to be caught expressing a favorable opinion about something that his dad then disapproves of. Yeah, she's a minor girl. Among Pfeiffer's daughters, I'd say she's, you know, like... She's minor Pfeiffer. <laughs> minor Pfeiffer. <laughs> and, and the way anytime Bernard is asked a question... He's like, well, that reminds me of something I thought about myself one time. And he's, of course, oblivious to what his son is agonizingly going through right in front of him. Though, to be somewhat fair, like his son is pretty good at concealing his agony. The person least equipped to um, guide the, you know, inner life of a, of a kid um, is the one whose job it is to do that. It's interesting that you say that about his like concealment because that's such a I mean, it's obviously such a vicious cycle is that it's like I'm sure Bernard's never made it. Bernard strikes me as a person who seems like once someone reveals to them their feelings, his his response of feeling inconvenienced is something that strongly encourages them to never reveal his feelings again. It was interesting. I mean, it was interesting to see both parents response that his, you know, his father ultimately uh the way he relates is he was at a party at George Plimpton's once and a woman threw him threw herself at him and he was not able to pursue that because uh, he was with with their mother and the mother's response when he's feeling pangs of missing Sophie when he realizes that he's fucked up is that she's just glad that he's feeling feelings. We know that Bernard was the dad. Uh-huh. Who's the daddy? I mean, I was watching this and I was like midway through and I was like, Billy Baldwin is the daddy. He, I think it was as he was showing up. And it's, and it's that he's like, his character could suck in all kinds of ways that we don't know about. Who knows? But based on what we've seen, he feels like just the kind of sort of uncomplicatedly good natured person who like kids need to have around, you know, and like maybe that's. I think that's some of his daddiness. He's good. He's good and good for you. He's exactly what you need. Pro in every sense of the word. <laughs> There's a scene in the movie where where Walt rips off a Pink Floyd song at his uh, talent show, and it's so rough to watch. That has to be the most painful scene. <laughs> Maybe all time. Certainly right up there. And this is a movie with like little kids like smearing their cum on lockers. So like. So while I'm watching that originally, uh, I'm like, how do and we we learn that Annette Paquin's character knows that it's a Pink Floyd song, but I'm like, how do more people not know this is a Pink Floyd song? And however, we see we see Walt in the back of an ambulance talking to, finally, after he's had all of his revelations, you know, he admits to Ivan that that wasn't his song. And Ivan just says, I know. And it's so l- lovely that he didn't just like sabotage him when he originally did that. He's like, you're working through some stuff, brother. <laughs> Give me 10 wind sprints. It's also like, and we got that set up the first time we see him because he's like, hey, you've been teaching fake 
tennis technique to your kids. Don't do that. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, what do you think Noah Baumbach is going through? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Like, you know, obviously there's the thing about wanting to make a movie about the thing that happened to you and fictionalize the embarrassing parts and delete the super embarrassing parts or whatever, you know, like to use the mask of fiction a bit, but then completely uh, invite the sense that it's pure autobiography, which I think it, based on what I uh, have heard him say and what I've read and stuff, I mean, it's pretty close, I think. But um, part of it is the like, the thing of people in Brooklyn in 1982 or whatever, that, 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 that social context where you could I don't know, afford to be a a liberal intellectual faker, you know, and and not only have a own a brownstone and but also go get another one when your marriage falls apart across the park. It's the fillet of the neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that sense of like this is a scenario that um, befalls people who think they kind of have the world figured out and they don't have anything figured out. That's something that happens to even these sort of like he clearly does still attach a kind of I don't know if glamour, but a romance to being that kind of the kind of people that they are in this movie is that's a vanishing class. Um, I know that they there are still some examples of it um, in the world, but like there used to be way more. It used to be kind of a viable identity if you wanted to go that way. Not that, uh, you know. Not that you would, but, you know, that was a person you could be. And now that kind of person just barely exists anymore because the idea of kind of going around and, you know, feeling entitled to to sort of poo-poo all lesser things. Um, I just don't know that that's like a, um, I don't know that that's a, an archetype that you see anymore. And in a way, the divorce of the parents is, uh, you know, it does kind of stand in for like, but, you know, by the time Reagan's first term was over, those people were clearly marked out as like an endangered species. And maybe they maybe that's right. Maybe they should have been. But um, I think it's something about that. I think it's something about the vanished world and the vanished world of his childhood specifically. But the I think that's a big part of it, as opposed to universality. This is not a context that a lot of people would be like, oh, I see that. Right. No, I, yeah, I think that, too. If you throw out the question of how closely it's inspired by reality, it's still a story about a young man growing up and learning that his father is a jerk and that he doesn't have the capacity to parent him. This feels to me like the kind of movie that you make in order to move past sort of your own origin story. It's a growing up story. um, And I feel like that's a story that a lot of us find that we have to tell in order to tell other stories. All right, everybody, that is it for Wire Dads. Thank you so much to Sean Nelson for joining us for today's episode. We are produced by Carolyn Kendrick, who also made all of today's music. Next week, we'll be watching Frankenstein and Young Frankenstein. You can follow our conversations all week on Twitter and Instagram. 
Thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping us pay the bills. If you become a supporter, you can get some behind-the-scenes stuff and uh, episodes we're not going to release elsewhere, etc., etc. And thank you for listening. We will connect with you all next week and on social media between now and then. Um, I hope your life is as great as it can be in these times.